The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box this Monday morning. In your headlines this hour, British travel company Thomas Cook collapses, leaving 150,000 travellers stranded, prompting what is being described as the largest peacetime repatriation effort in British history. We'll hear from the chair of the UK's Civil Aviation Authority in just a few moments' time. Oil prices rise as the US sends additional troops to the Gulf, while Saudi Arabia's state foreign minister tells CNBC Iran's threats are absurd. It's not the first time he said something ridiculous and laughable. Saudi Arabia and the United States are allies. The attack that Iran conducted was an attack against the whole world, not just Saudi Arabia. Stocks across Asia following Wall Street lower after Chinese officials cut their U.S. visit short. But the Commerce Ministry says talks were constructive. And the Bank for International Settlements flags concerns over negative interest rates, calling their acceptance, quote, vaguely troubling. Whilst UBS's Axel Weber tells CNBC they're changing the investor environment. I don't expect European interest rates to change anytime soon. This will lead to big changes in the investor environment because whilst in the past you could expect to wait it out, you can't wait it out now. So, warm welcome this Monday morning to Squawk Box. British travel company Thomas Cook has collapsed after a weekend crisis. Talks uh, failed to find the extra £200 million demanded by lenders for a rescue deal. The chief executive, uh, Peter Frankhauser, apologising to customers, employees and suppliers and saying entering liquidation is, quote, a matter of profound regret. Uh, the package holiday specialist currently has around 600,000 customers on holiday. The UK government will charter planes to bring home 150,000 stranded British tourists over the next two weeks. Thomas Cook's failure put 22,000 jobs at risk worldwide, including 9,000 in the UK. Well, we can do some analysis on this afterwards, but I'm delighted to say joining the show is Dame Deirdre Hutton, who is the chair of the Civil Aviation Authority. Um, Very, very good to have you on the show. So thank you very much indeed for putting yourself up for interviews so early. Look, I've looked back at the history of this company. We've been involved as a financial services kind of media company looking at this company over the years. It seems that it's been troubled for a very long time. How prepared has the CAA and other regulators been, including, of course, the UK government, uh, for this event? Well, you're perfectly right that Thomas Cook has struggled for a little while. I think there's been, it is a very competitive market. Um, and it, but it is an extremely sad day. And I, I would like to recognise that. It's, it's the world's oldest travel company. Um, there are 9,000 uh, employees who are losing their jobs. So it is a very sad day and our thoughts are with them. It's also a worrying time for passengers. And I would like to absolutely emphasise, you use the word stranded. Nobody will be stranded. We will be bringing everybody home. The government has asked us to run a repatriation programme. And that's what we'll do. So every single person out there, those 150,000 passengers will be brought home. 
there any problems with actually getting the passengers from where they are on holiday at the moment to the airports, onto the planes? Because watching the media over the weekend, lots of people Skyping and sending broadcasts back to the mainstream media home saying, in fact, in some cases, they were being held hostage by the hoteliers because they were worried about not getting paid by the travel operators. Uh, the, the, the really important thing that passengers must do is to go to the dedicated website, which is Thomas Cook, one word, thomascook.caa.co.uk. And on that, they will find all the information they need. It's a very straightforward website. They can click through and find the flight they're going to be on. Uh, it'll also give details about hotel. But that, that's the really important thing that passengers must do. Go to that website. There's also a call centre number if they can't get the help they need from the website. But as I say, every single person will be brought home. It is a huge operation. It's uh, 100... 150,000 passengers, it's 18 countries, 55 airports, 1,000 flights. So inevitably, there will be some lumps and bumps on the way, but nobody is going to be stranded. Just, just on the uh, logistics involved here, all of these people will have been booked on a flight anyway. Is this not just simply a case of making sure that those carriers honour the bookings that have been made? Are you required at all to lay on any extra capacity? Yes, of course we are, because the Thomas, all the Thomas Cook planes are leased. So those planes are no longer available. And we have had to find um, 50, 50, 40, sorry, 40 airplanes from around the world uh, in order to bring people back. So this is, frankly, the CAA building a new airline, perhaps the UK's fourth biggest airline in a very short space of time. Um, but uh, it is, as I speak, um, I believe the first flight is loaded and ready to go from New York. Um, we have a very busy flying program today. Everybody will be brought home. I think the other thing is people will be wondering whether they ought to rush to the airport. They shouldn't. We will be bringing them back around the time that they would have flown back anyway. So they can stay, enjoy their holidays, look at the website to find their new flights that website, thomascook.caa.co.uk. And can I ask you, will there be any implications for other users of these air routes during this time? Will this capacity that you're bringing on stream to ferry people back have any overspill impact on other travellers using European air routes? Uh, I don't believe so, no. Um, but to be honest, my complete focus at the moment is on the repatriation exercise and getting everybody home. And just one more thing. I mean, Dame Hutton, we, we've talked about the fact that this was not so much foreseeable, but potentially could have happened at any stage in the last couple of years. Do you think the government uh, has been well prepared enough working with the CAA, looking at what the atoll arrangements are as well? Because there is a feeling, of course, in, in many circles that the government is obsessed with one key issue, which may have uh, been part of the downfall of Thomas Cook, i.e. Brexit, and has taken its eye off the ball on other issues. Is your understanding that the government has worked well and cohesively throughout this Brexit period uh, to basically be ready for this kind of event? Uh, we've been working very closely with the government over this particular event. And, you know, I mean, until really the last minute, we were hopeful that uh, Thomas Cook could be saved. Um, unfortunately, at 
really in the last day, uh, the directors of Thomas Cook decided they could not carry on, um, hence the repatriation exercise. But as I say, we are focused very much on that exercise. Many other questions I'm sure will come later, but at the moment it's getting those 150,000 people home, which we will do. Well, obviously, one of the questions that will have to be answered at some point is who bears the cost for all of this? Will the taxpayer ultimately have to bear the price for this repatriation effort? Um, look, again, these, these are questions for later, precisely how the cost is divvied up between uh, the taxpayer and the, the Atoll Protection Fund. Um, at the moment, I am completely focused on running what is in effect the UK's fourth largest airline and getting everybody home. Um, if I can just, for once more, if I may just repeat, all passengers should go and look at the website. Their new flight will be up something like 72 hours before they were originally due to fly home. That website, thomascook.caa.co.uk. And of course, anybody who hoped they were going to fly out today or in subsequent days booked on a Thomas Cook holiday, that will not be happening and they must not go to the airport because sadly there will be no Thomas Cook flights. Uh, Dame Hutton, we really appreciate you joining us today. You're an incredibly busy woman My today. Pleasure. Thank you so much indeed for your time and for that very valuable information for now and of course for the future as well. Dame Deirdre Hutton, who is uh, in charge of the Civil uh, Air Authority, Aviation Authority, I should say. Jeff, yes. let's um, just take a little what? bit of a walk because we're we'll going to go back to the desk. Okay. But I want to stop here. Okay. <laughs> hey, look, right. it's Monday morning, why not? Yes. Because look, this is the last couple of years. Uh, on Thomas Cook and the share price. And do you know what? You and I have been speaking to many, many important people in this industry over the years. CNBC's done a lot of work, of course, in the travel sector in our weekend programming. So yes. you and I have seen a lot that has happened here. And look, it is not for us now to necessarily go through the full analysis while this is a clear and present crisis for a lot of people, a lot of individuals who have got a really troubling uh, few days ahead. But, but basically, the market uh, has spotted a lot of the issues here, hence the 97% decline. Most most of which has happened in the last year or so. But just looking back at this company's demise, and it has been a long, slow demise. It is a demise which has been accompanied by many other demises which one could see, i.e. the demise of the package holiday. You and I, I remember the exact conversations with Peter Long, who is a long-time professional involved in many of the companies involved in this over the years, talking about how they were looking to diversify. The demise of the high street travel agent as well. Do you know this company, I couldn't believe it when I heard that they still have over 500 UK travel agents as well. So the demise of the retail sector as well. The demise of the package holiday, the rise of people actually just putting their own holidays together. There is a small company out there called Airbnb. Anyone heard of that one? People do that. People get their own travel uh, uh, insurance, car hire, uh, flights as well. We we're talking about EasyJet and Ryanair, maybe EasyJet getting involved in some of the repatriation. I read in some of the papers as well. So a lot of the ingredients have been there for a long time. In fact, if this chart went back another decade, yes. it was between the year 2000 and 2010 that this company was involved in all kinds of mergers. We talk about debt on the books as well. Again, as another issue, well, everyone thinks you and I are really fuddy-duddy and old-fashioned when we talk about debt on books. But what do you think the latest catalyst for this company's huge debt pile was? Yeah, 
It was, wasn't it? It was the write-down of the My Travel merger costs as well. So, hence, you got an extra billion on the pile as well. This one was private again, by the way, before 2007. Karstad, Kvela, Arkandor, Thomas Middelhoff, names from the middle of the last decade were all involved in this one as well. So, to say that this wasn't something that was a very slow-motion issue uh, would be very naive. No, and a- absolutely. You make some fascinating points. And, of course, that you know the latest money to come in Chinese money, looking to own Western assets that potentially have a good turnaround story to tell. Unfortunately, you know, if we follow the tale of disintermediation caused by new technology, Thomas Cook has been one of those businesses that's been terribly disrupted ever since the early days of um, uh, some of those uh, new digital e-bookers and others that came to the market and and offered choices. But of course, we are a little bit fuddy-duddy because I think you and I probably both remember the days of Freddie Laker if we go back to the 1970s and how challenging it is to run these kind of businesses. And we've had a history. We've had a history of travel companies that have gone to the wall over recent decades. And so there shouldn't be any major surprise here. My question is, who benefits from this now? Do we need to keep our eye on travel companies that are listed that will see perhaps an opportunity for a spike off the back of a reduction in capacity? So that's one of the things that our our smarter investor audience should do today because obviously there will be some blood in the water around this issue when it comes to the markets and, and where the opportunity may be. And that's our job. We have to look at financial assets and, and I think TUI is the one that everyone will be looking at the open today. Yeah. Do they get a spike? Because they are the big player left in town in that European and global travel sector. One thing I will say sure. about, you mentioned Freddie Laker and it was absolutely spot on. I remember Freddie Laker very well in the 1970s. I remember flying Laker Air in the 70s and then people came along afterwards, perhaps they improved the model, the, uh, the Stelios Hagianus of this world, the Leary's of this world as well, the Southwestern model in the United States as well. But I will say one thing, it ain't a slam dunk for those people. And you look at the models of some of those companies, such as Norwegian Air, and you look at the vast amount of debt built up, building those nouveau models as well. And you look, maybe there are questions there about some of the profitability models of some of these interlopers who have taken the place uh, of the likes of Thomas Cook. Right. Anyway, I'm going to wander back to the desk and leave you to uh, talk about U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, oh. because that gentleman has announced that additional troops will be sent to the Gulf region following attacks on Saudi oil facilities earlier this month. Mr. Pompeo described the decision as a, quote, form of deterrence and defense. He added that he hoped to avoid conflict with Iran, which the U.S. and Saudi Arabia believe is behind the attacks. Tehran, of course, has denied any involvement. Now, Iran's foreign minister has said the country is prepared for a, quote, all-out war in the event of a conflict with U.S. or Saudi forces. In an interview with CNBC, Saudi uh, Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, Al-Jaber, dismissed those claims. That's ridiculous, and it's not the first time he said something ridiculous and laughable. Saudi Arabia and the United States are allies. The attack that Iran conducted was an attack against the whole world, not just Saudi Arabia. And now they're trying to justify it. They're trying to find ways to create divides. But that's ridiculous. And when you take a step back and think about this kind of international consensus that you're looking for, you said just a few minutes ago that you think that it is the responsibility of the world to protect this region. But isn't that Saudi Arabia's responsibility? Of course. It's our responsibility to protect our borders, our people, our residents, our infrastructure. Absolutely. 
Um, the, but the world also has a responsibility to make sure that Iran is not allowed to get away with murder and that Iran's aggressive behavior and destructive behavior must be checked. And the world has a responsibility to, to ensure the freedom of navigation in the Gulf and in the Arabian Sea so that the global energy supplies are not disrupted. We are committed a, a lot of our resources to this effort. We have uh, strong defense capabilities in order to deal with these efforts. But it has to be the world community has to take a step in this direction also. One of the things the international community can do is further isolate Iran and extract the price from Iran for its aggressive behavior. It seems as if the president at least twice has backed down from directly confronting Iran in the last few months. Does it worry you that at the last moment he'll back away? We are in consultations with the U.S. on how to deal with uh, Iran's aggressive behavior, as we are with other allies uh, around the world. And I think uh, once the results of the investigation are finalized, we will have to make decisions with regards to what steps we need to take to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Walk me through those potential steps, because how many diplomatic tools do you really have left in the bag here? There are a number of issues one can take. Uh, increased isolation of Iran, increased sanctions on Iran, um, there are other steps that can be taken in other areas, but I will not get into them because it's not my purview, nor is it appropriate to discuss any such options before decisions are made. Uh, there you go. The uh, interview with the state foreign minister there carried out by Hadley Gamble. The CEO of Saudi Aramco says the state-owned oil company has come back from the attacks against its facilities, quote, stronger than ever. In a note to employees, Amin Nasser added that full production will resume by the end of the month. However, media reports have quoted Saudi officials who say repairs could take months longer than Aramco currently anticipates. Saudi Aramco has selected UBS and Deutsche Bank as bookrunners for its potential $2 trillion initial public offering. According to Reuters, Aramco has reportedly begun to inform the banks about their roles. Both banks declined to comment while Aramco was not immediately available for comment. You know you're not glib. I'd never call you that. You're okay. thoughtful. You're precise on, and well-read. What are you after? Got a tenner. No, I'm joking. Yes. But, but in all seriousness, the, the, the phrase that we just went through there in your reason, yes. oh, the two trillion valuation, I'm thinking, whoa, that's yeah. someone's valuation. That ain't necessarily everyone's valuation. Yes. And well, therein lies the questions about this uh, Ramco IPO. Has it been hurt by events? And it's hard to think that it hasn't been hurt by events. And that's not me taking a view on the actual valuation. It's when you have valuable infrastructure that looks vulnerable all of a sudden, mm. then surely that has a valuation impact. Uh, remains to be seen, is, is what I would add at this point. I understand why that $2 trillion valuation is being thrown around. Um, and we understand the story about the defence of the facilities until we actually see an IPO pricing. It's pretty hard to tell just how much the damage has been done. Are as well of that IPO. Mm. Is it local investors in Saudi? Is it international investors? We'll have to wait and see. But I mention this because we're ad-libbing WTI to break. So I will tell you that WTI is currently trading at 58 spot 7, 64.96 for Brent. And gold had a decent day on Friday, 15.15. We'll be back. A CNBC signature event. 
East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshan, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Right, everybody, a lot of data this week, actually. You've got another reading of second quarter GDP later in the week. You've got lots of uh, consumer uh, and price indicators as well. You've got market PMIs later today as well. But as far as last week is concerned, well, these moves actually on Friday's session were pretty much the moves uh, for the week. The Nikkei was down, a big part of the Nasdaq was down by a similar margin to 0.81%. And it was the same story for the S&P, which ended down a half of 1%. It, it reared its head, didn't it, briefly into the territory of people. People are sniffing out a new record for the S&P last week, but it ended uh, on the back foot, having come around about 30 points from its weekly intraday high. The Dow uh, was down six tenths of one percent. Healthcare, I think, was outperforming to the upside. Consumer discretionary to the downside. Would you like a look at the Asian markets? Yeah, why not, says the director. Uh, Down 1.3 percent in the Shanghai Composite. Uh, Hang Seng down nine tenths of one percent. There aside, we have the uh, ASX 200 up four tenths of 1%. should be said that the uh, the Nikkei uh, is closed, probably celebrating all that fantastic rugby coming out of Japan uh, over the weekend. My goodness me, what a few great games we saw as well. Unless you're Scottish, of course. And let's have a look at the opening calls um, for European markets. Down uh, 40 points for the FTSE MIB. The CAC currency down 10, the Zetradex down 21, and yet another key week for Brexit sees the FTSE at the start of the week around 73.45. American and Chinese deputy negotiators held, quote, productive talks, according to the U.S. Trade Representative's office. Washington says it's looking forward to hosting the Chinese delegation in October for principle-level discussions. Beijing echoed the positive sentiment, saying talks were constructive. The U.S. has also removed tariffs from over 400 Chinese products in response to requests from American companies. Well, CNBC spoke with Blackstone's Executive Vice Chairman Tony James at the Singapore summit and asked him how bullish he is about the prospects for a trade deal. I am still optimistic, but less optimistic, if that's, if that's fair. I think it's, maybe it's wishful thinking on my part. I think it's in both countries' interest economically. I think it's both le- leaders' interest in terms of their local uh, political constituencies. So I think there's reasons that we'll get some deal. I suspect now it'll be smaller than what I, what I was anticipating last year and, and, the, and less certain for sure. So yes, optimism that something will happen, but it will be more modest. What does smaller look like? Perhaps a deal that only concerns trade and doesn't get to some of the more difficult issues on intellectual property transfer? Well, I think that's almost certainly true, yes. But even within trade, easier items, soybeans, pork, as opposed to harder items, um, um, technology and other things. So, so, but, but I wouldn't underestimate the importance of getting the easy items agreed. Hmm. And, I, and I think, for me, the importance of the trade is is twofold. Number one, obviously, uh, it would help economic growth and just a sense of we're in dialogue and are finding areas of agreement would help business confidence. Uh, 
and that would be helpful to both economies. More importantly, though, if there's no trade deal, there's no basis for continuing discussion between the countries. There's no commonality of interest. And I worry at that point it could spiral out of control and become, become much more hostile, much more adversarial, um, and ultimately Cold War-ish or something. So, so I think finding ways to have mutuality of interest is important both for business and for uh, geopolit- geopolitical stra- um, issues. What are the risks we enter a Cold War period between the U.S. and China? Well, I'm reluctant to say Cold War, but I think there is significant risk that we enter a, a cooler <laughs> uh, rela- uh, relationship with less, as I say, less common interests hmm. and more aggravation, more risk that something goes wrong and confrontational. Neither country wants to back down. Um, all those risks go up a lot. And so, yeah, I'm worried about that. The uncertainty you talked about in terms of the impact it's having on the economy. I mean, what do you see in the way of at Blackstone when you look at your investments, when you speak to other executives that you work with? Do you think that this smaller trade deal that you are now expecting will be enough to remove that uncertainty that is impacting business? Well, not totally for sure. It'll, it'll help certain sectors, but not others. But where, this, where it's hitting the most is the manufacturing sector, industrial sector. That's significantly slower. And of course, that's the sector where the supply chain is heavily impacted by trade tensions. People talk about Vietnam doing well, but Vietnam is something like 1% of manufacturing and China's 25. You're not going to replace much decline in, in, in China activity with Vietnam. How has this changed the way you do business in China? Well, it really hasn't. We're believers in China for the long term. And um, it's a great engine of growth. It's, it's, got a, it's got, as far as it's come, which has been remarkable, it's got a long way to go still in terms of uh, burgeoning middle class and per capita income, per capita productivity, all those things. So, so um I think lack of a trade deal with the United States slows it down. It's a headwind of growth, but it's still a, a big and, and very much growing economy that we're, we're very focused on. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.